Let's take our Bibles and look to the book of Ephesians today. It's towards the end of the Bible, you'll find those small epistles that are huge in the message for the church. The book of Ephesians, you can find that and move to chapter 2, if you will. In 1773, as you heard earlier, John Newton delivered a New Year's Day message. It was a devotion to his congregation on that Friday morning in Olney, Buckinghamshire, England. He and a friend who was a gifted writer whose name was William Cowper wrote some verses to illustrate the points of the message that he was delivering that day. In fact, that was common in the day that there would be an illustration either in poem or in music that had been written particularly by the pastor who was delivering the message. It was a way for illiterate people in that day to have an understanding of the biblical truth that could last them throughout the week. They could just sing or rehearse those verses that had been shared with them and taught to them. In fact, many of our beloved hymns come from this season in history, the 18th century, and many of them are written by pastors. I think of people like uh, Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley as those hymns that they have written are dear to us. Soon we'll be singing joy to the world. And when I survey the wondrous cross and at the cross and Christ the Lord is risen today and oh for a thousand tongues to sing. Those are the kind of hymns that the pastors of the 18th century would write and teach to their congregation. There a collection was put together in Olney called the Olney Hymns and 348 of those hymns were published. They were a treasure to the church no doubt 80% of them were written by John Newton himself. And that collection became a a great impact for the evangelicals in Britain, uh, particularly among the Methodist church. They were steeped in those kind of hymns because uh, many of them would embrace them so readily. Now, it was said of John Newton that he was unashamedly middle-brow lyricist writing for a low-brow congregation. How about that as a quote? Now, middle brow does not mean that he has a unibrow. That's a different thing altogether. Anybody have unibrows in here? Just kind of surveying the audience even now. Something happens when you hit 50. Your eyebrows start growing together if they haven't already grown together. You start shooting hair out the top of your ears, and who knows what's coming out your nose at any given time. A middle brow lyricist is one who is self-taught. He's an intellectual individual that has a way of still making an impact to those who are not intellectual. He, he was one who could package the truth in such a way that anybody from the top to the bottom of the intellectual scale could receive that truth. Jesus was a perfect teacher like that. He could take incredibly complex truths, God's holy word, and communicate it in ways that anybody could understand, often using illustrations that the common person would understand. We're spiritually indebted to to that group of men, the writers of the 18th century, 
We still sing many of those hymns because they are so rich in biblical truth and they encourage us to live by faith. They are part of the expression many times of our worship to the Lord and praise to Him. We just sing those songs unto the Lord and we sing them to each other and encourage each other. I love to hear children sing the old hymns. There's a beauty about that, a richness to that. I'm just thinking in this moment that many of you have a musical way about you. You have a talent when it comes to music. If you could be a student of the Bible and come to biblical truth and understanding and then express that in your creative writings, it would be incredibly helpful to the people of God. And it could be evangelistic to those who need the Savior some of you have a creative writing skill. You're interested in poetry. You're interested in fiction and nonfiction. You have a way of writing lessons, messages, devotions, playwrights, songs. I encourage you to pursue that in the name of Jesus Christ. You might say, well, I don't have an education to do that, or I don't have the polish expertise that would be required for that. But let me remind you, you only have to be a middle brow, <laughs> and pretty much any of us can be that. Be faithful with what God has entrusted to you and your abilities and your talents, the way that God has shaped you and your creative mindset. Be faithful in that. Newton's most famous song is actually filled with 146 words. 121 of them are single-syllable words. That's about as simple as you can get. And yet they communicate to us profound truths. The church needs writers and composers, people who are steeped in biblical truth and can engage in the arts in a way that people can grab hold of those truths and remember those truths and be reflectant of those truths now much of the popular contemporary Christian music today misguides people because it's not biblically sound the purpose of much of the music that's popular today that's being published written and published today and sung today is actually meant to stir the emotions more than to stir the intellect to stir the soul so I'm asking people who are deeply entrenched in biblical truth, who are good students of the Bible, who have the ability to be creative, to push towards that, to press towards that mark, to exercise it, to, to come to a, a home skill and ability that would help the body of Christ here and around the world. We need writers, musicians, we need people who are artistic to help us with biblical truth and theology. Now let's remind ourselves this morning as we're thinking of John Newton that the arts can be amazingly powerful and wonderfully transformative and when they are sourced with truth can actually exalt the Savior and help the souls and the minds and the lives of people such that they are impacted in incredible ways. Art is always meant to be an expression of God's glory. It's pretty nasty and ugly when it's not. But you have embraced the glory of God. You have the word of God, and you press towards that word. 
let it be expressed in the way that God has creatively made you. So I want to challenge the creative people in this room, the writers, the composers, the artists, to stop burying your treasure and trust God that he can use you, a middle brow, to evangelize the lost and to disciple the saints. Would you turn the TV off, shut the phone down, and before the Lord, with his word in your lap, begin to write, sing, compose, express in ways that could help the congregation. So Newton's most famous work that you just heard sung is actually called Faith's Review and Expectations. Not much of a catchy phrase there, is it? Faith's Review and Expectations. Now we know that song, it's just entrenched in us now. We've heard it so often. It is sung throughout the world in weddings and funerals and churches and in my heart, even as I'm driving down Rainbow Drive. We know it from the first line of the hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The hymn actually started as an illustration to Newton's devotion on the first day of 1773 he was reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 17. I, I was going to use that same passage in this message, but I've gone in a different direction. But let me just show you the passage and read it to you so that you'll have the mindset of why he chose this passage and chose to reflect on the passage with that song. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. He has this messianic understanding that, that God was going to bring from the house of David the Messiah. And he sees that in the, in the far future. You have shown me future generations, O Lord. I like the question, who am I? That's a great question for us all to reflect before the Lord. Who am I? It's one that's repeated throughout the scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. You find that Moses is asking of God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of this land? Who am I? Who am I to do that? And when preparing to build a house for the Lord, Solomon had that same reflection. Who am I to build a house for him, for the Lord? Who am I? And when it came time to give the offering of the construction of the temple, it was David who asked, Who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. In other words, who am I to be able to give to you? Everything belongs to you. It's entrusted to me by you. Who am I that you would choose me and this people of mine to offer such a gift to you? Who am I? And of course, twice we see the reflection that, that Newton was uh, pondering on that New Year's Day of 1773. In two books of the Bible, David poses the same question. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And that was the question that was on John Newton's mind when he was penning this song that you and I just heard. Who am I? 
Now, Newton understood what you and I know. It is only by God's amazing grace that we could experience the amazing goodness of God. It's by his grace. So that started him in pondering for David out of 1 Chronicles, pondering, when I look back on my life, I see the grace of God. When I look in the present, I see the grace of God and his promises that are given to me. And when I look forward to the future, in the future generations, I see the expectant grace of God as well. So Newton was in his message on that day saying, we want to contemplate today God's grace in the past, God's grace in the present, and God's grace in the future. Now, I want to do it not from an Old Testament passage. I want to do it from the New Testament letter of, Ephes of Ephesians. Uh, and I want to do the same thing by posing this faith's review and expectations from Ephesians chapter 2. I want to look back at God's grace, look around us today at God's grace, and look to the future and find God's grace as well. So let's look back at God's goodness. In Newton's life, you'll know that John Newton was born in London as the son of a shipping merchant. His mother died of tuberculosis when he was just six years old. Now, she wanted him to be a clergyman. But, of course, her influence in her son's life was cut short since her life was, was ended at such a young age of little Newton. And while his father was at sea, John Newton's stepmother, who was emotionally evasive in his life, was trying to raise him. She ended up sending him off to boarding school, and at the age of 11, he actually quit ran away from that school and ended up joining his father as a ship apprentice at the age of 11. Now to say that John Newton was wayward in his life would be a gross understatement. He was a headstrong reprobate. He denounced his mother's faith and he, he began to sink deeply into sin very early in his, lay, in his age. And as he was on those ships, along with his father and then later on his own, he got into every vice known for sailors to get into. He was in constant trouble. Newton was pressed into the Royal Navy. That, that doesn't sound like much to us, but to be pressed is to be enslaved. It means you're forced without expectation to get on a ship and fight for the Royal Navy. And like every other institution in his life, he ran away from that. He ran away from home. He ran away from church. He ran away from school. He ran away from military service and later was caught by that latter group. And when he was caught, he was imprisoned and publicly flogged for desertion. And after that time was over with, he was actually traded to become part of a slave merchant ship he was traded as a slave himself that was the beginning of this dark career that would take him for a number of years in the slave trade industry the ever rebellious newton stirred trouble with the crew and the captain and found himself imprisoned there on the sea chained like all the other slaves that were being uh, carted for as merchant merchandise around the world but one day, while on a voyage to England around Sierra Leone, he was actually captured by the uh, group called the Sherbo people. They, too, had been involved in the slave trade industry, those West Africans, and they actually took him as captive as a slave to be there among them. 
It was only later that he was rescued after he wrote his father a letter and uh, the captain of a ship called Greyhound came and rescued him. Now he's living his life on the vessels, trading back and forth from Africa and around the Western world, slaves, until 1748 when there was a shift, a major shift in his life. In fact, there was such a violent storm on the seas that day that he thought his life would be over with. He strapped himself to uh, the ship in order to hold the helm of the ship and did so for hours, but at one point, as he watched other people be washed ashore, uh, washed overboard, and knew the ship was probably going to go down, he uttered out a prayer that would transform his life. It was a simple prayer. This is the prayer that all of us ought to be praying when we come to faith in Christ. God have mercy on us. God have mercy on us. That's a good position for people to be in. When they recognize that everything is a loss except that God would have mercy. When you recognize you, you have nothing but sin in your life, God have mercy. You have nothing but brokenness in your life, God have mercy. You have nothing but addiction in your life, God have mercy. When you have no way out, God have mercy. That's a great prayer. And that was his prayer that he prayed. Two weeks later, that battered ship made its way into the landing in Ireland. And Newton began to contemplate, is he worthy of God's mercy? Is it that he could actually be redeemable? Is that even possible, the life that he has lived? Now, the answer to that theological question that Newton has posed is resoundingly no. There is no mercy that is afforded to any of us on our own merit. There's no righteous merit in us that God would say, oh, I think I'm going to be merciful towards him. There's something there worth redeeming in her, something there that I, that I kind of like. In fact, absolutely nothing about our lives God likes. It's all filthy to him. But yet in his love and in his mercy and in his grace, God chooses us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was no merit or righteous redemption value that was in not John Newton, and neither is there a righteous merit in any of us. We all know that we are wretched, lost, and blind spiritually. Now remember, Newton's poem that he writes in this day that will later become a song is reflecting these truths that he is teaching his congregation. And you can hear the reflection of that kind of truth in the first two verses of this song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now, if you're in that congregation in 1773, illiterate, you could take that song and sing it and reflect on God's grace when you look back in your life. 
When you look back at the place where you were, wretched, blind, and lost, you can see the grace of God. Now, for some of you, you're right there. You're still at that wretched, lost, blind place. You find yourself steeped in sin, not able to break from the, the chains that are binding you. I want you to hear and discover that God's grace is being offered to you. It's a gift, and here's the gift, that God would exchange your sin for his righteousness and on the cross, he would bear the pain and the suffering, the judgment that is against you. He would bear that from heaven above, fully satisfying the justice that is now measured against you. Christ himself would take that for you. And in exchange, he would forgive you and impute his righteousness in your life. Not by any merit on your own. You didn't shine like a flash in the pan. There was nothing about you but wretchedness, lostness, and blindness. But God is giving grace to you. Amazing grace. That's what he was doing for me as well. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Puts us all in that spot, doesn't it? Dead. Needing life, but no way to get it. Sinful through and through, no way to bring righteousness, no way to deal with the wretchedness in our life until amazing grace stepped in. Then Newton asked the people to look around at God's grace, the promises that were extended to them and the grace of God in the moment. Now, throughout his life, Newton not only neglected the faith deposit that had been made by his mother, he opposed it. Throughout his young life and into his adulthood, he mocked people who had faith. He derided them. But following this near-death experience on the high seas, he believed that God had sent him a profound message and his conversion was coming. It wasn't immediate, but it was coming. He longed to marry a woman named Polly Catlett, but her parents were guarded and hesitant at her marrying him. He was quite a scoundrel, as you know. But he desperately tried to clean up his life, but he found himself falling desperately short. Because who can clean up a wicked heart? That's exactly right, nobody. You're not going to be able to scour your heart clean. You can't put enough good in your heart to overcome the bad. What would you ever do with all the bad anyway? We need God's mercy in that moment. And this, he's moving. God is stirring. He's awakening Newton. But there's going to be a journey to this faith decision. He continued as a slave trader, making many voyages back and forth uh, from Africa, buying and selling trays, slaves. And at the same time, he's beginning to read his Bible and Christian literature. He started attending church services and had faith discussions with fellow crewmen. He was on a, a spiritual movement, an exploration, if you will. 
And near the end of his sailing career, while serving aboard a ship in Liverpool, Newton encountered a, a crewman named Alexander Clooney. Newton was not only a Christian, he was a discipler. And he saw, uh, excuse me, Crooney was not just a, a Christian, he was a discipler. He saw the opportunity to disciple Newton, influence him with biblical truth. And so they discussed God's grace and God's redemption. They discussed the biblical truth of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And Newton was growing more aware of his sin, becoming more understanding of his spiritual state, total depravity. He was understanding that. And the realities of his sinful treatment against people he had been writing in diaries all that time about his ill treatment and evil wicked treatment of people but he didn't just have to write that in his diary my friends that was written on his soul it had struck his conscience and he couldn't quite get away from that that sin was heavy in his life and not only was it in his life but it was chronicled in heaven and he reckoned that one day he was going to have to give an account for everything done that God was writing it all down his conscience was heavy and it was burdened. And recognition of his moral depravity and need for forgiveness brought about a pivotal moment of the Holy Spirit. And along with that recognition of his own sin, he came to understand God's grace and redemption that could be provided through Jesus Christ. He recognized that he had a sin problem and he also was being introduced biblically to a savior who would be the solution to that problem and he came to receive God's grace and forgiveness through faith trusting that God had reached out to him mercifully despite his sinful past and that is what he describes as the great deliverance that God was delivering him from his sin as he repented and believed he was forever changed and so while working as a custom agent in Liverpool in 1756, Newton began to teach himself Latin and Greek, the early language of the Bible, the New Testament. He began to study theology and uh, began to become a learned man in that. He and his wife Polly were dedicating themselves to the local church. His passion was so obvious that people in his newfound faith would talk to him about one day becoming a priest. In fact, he sought after the priesthood of the Church of England multiple times. He was turned down six times to be ordained by the bishops and the archbishops at the time. The Church of England didn't know what to do with the likes of the new saved Newton. He said that he had too much enthusiasm. I think that means that he was too much of an evangelical for the Church of England didn't know what to do with all this hymn writing and hymn singing that he was actually bringing into the church. They didn't believe that that had a place in the church. But the Earl of Dartmouth was very fond of Newton, and one day he made it so that the Church of England would invite Newton to become a priest and be ordained and placed him in the Olney Church in Buckinghamshire. Newton was wonderfully successful. Clearly, the new ordained priest loved the Lord, loved God's word, and he loved God's people. He was living in the promises of God's grace. As he's reflecting with his congregation on that New Year's Day, 
not just looking back to God's grace in his wretched past but looking at God's grace in this present he writes these next two verses through many dangers toils and snare I have already come tis grace hath brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home the Lord has promised good to me his word my hope secures he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures God's present grace the Apostle Paul would write it this way in the second chapter of Ephesians verse 4 and 5 but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ there's there's our life of God's grace alive with Christ by grace you have been saved he goes on to say that we'll be raised up and seated with him in Christ those are already present conditions that's the goodness of God the goodness of grace that is in our life today but then Newton calls the people to look forward to God's grace that there's an expectation of God's grace that is prevailing his preaching was different than most people he had shared in his to his congregation personal struggles and that was sort of unheard of among priests of that day sharing personal struggles with people temptations and the the wranglings the need for God's sustaining grace that was different and the fact that he he was transparent actually helped his congregation to understand what God was doing and calling and grace in their own life for Newton he said this is my mission I want to break the hard heart and heal the broken heart I want to break the hard heart and heal the broken heart Newton's only village congregation was a growing one I think the village only had about 2,500 people, but 600 of them went to his church. His influence was expanding. As I challenged those of you who had the ability to write, he was writing articles and books and hymns, and they soon moved him to a prominent church in London, the St. Mary Woolnoth Church, and there he served for 28 years. The once slave trader repentant of that life and the evil associated with it now was an abolitionist and he attempted to persuade others to move away from slavery maybe you've heard the name of William Wilberforce who was part of the parliament Newton was very influential with him wanting him to stay the course in parliament and bring about the the end of slavery Wilberforce at one time wanted to to come out of parliament and actually be a priest and Newton said no 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 you can do more service for God in parliament than you can in a pulpit that was great advice for him because together in tandem those men began to speak in a way that would influence the culture they would take the biblical truths and the understanding that they had of them connecting them to the personal experience particularly that of Newton who saw the atrocities of slavery and saw the conditions that people like him brought upon others who were made in the image of God and they began to communicate them and write about them and help sway the people had a huge impact in fact his most popular and most well 
sold pamphlet was thoughts on the African slave trade. It made a, a huge impact on shifting public opinion so that in 1807, William Wilberforce's abolition of slavery bill was finally voted into law by the House of Commons. Newton ended his life as a revered church leader, a famed author, an abolition reformer by God's grace. His final words on his deathbed, the final words that he gave on the 21st day of December in 1807 were, I am still in the land of dying. I shall be in the land of living soon. That's God's grace for the future. I think they probably said something like this. You still here, Newton? I am still in the land of the dying, but I will be in the land of the living soon. Oh, man, I've said it a dozen times this year. I want to live in faith, and I want to die in faith. I want to be faithful in my living and my dying. Thus, the last two verses. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortar life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. I don't know where that one left in the Western world, but we need to get that one back in. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. <laughs> it's looking back to God's grace when we were like everybody else ruled by the prince of the power of the air and seeing God's grace it's living in the present seated, raised and seated with Christ in his grace and it's looking to the future knowing that God's grace will prevail even through my dying moments into that day when I will be in the land of the living. The past, the present, the future. Listen again to the words of the Apostle Paul who wrote about that future loving kindness that is extended to us. But God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the stead, but then God gave us grace and raised us to life, life that's not dead in sin anymore, life that's alive in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We were there living richly with God and his blessings right now. The inheritance has already been given to us. The affections of God are already bestowed upon us. The fellowship that we will have in heaven is already ours in spirit. What a wonderful grace God has extended to us in Christ we know the loving kindness of God and it is evident first in our faith and now in the gifts that we might be able to accomplish good works that he has prepared beforehand and those have been prescribed by his spirit empowered by his spirit and rewarded by the Lord himself that's amazing grace that takes a song and it doesn't just stir us does it it takes a song and embeds biblical truth into our heart and our mind of the grace that has been extended to us in the past, the grace that we walk in in the present, and the grace that is promised to us in the future. That's what King David was reflecting on in First Chronicles. That's what Paul is reflecting on to the church at Ephesus, and that's what you and I are reflecting on today 
and let it be that we make an impact in the world because of that kind of grace let's pray together Lord in this moment I pray that your grace prevailing grace would be fully understood as you can give us the understanding in this feeble body we live in and it wouldn't just be an insight Lord it would impact the way we live the way we think the way we sing the way we are entertained oh I pray Lord that there will be many today reflecting on your grace who will want to share that grace with others want to walk side by side with others who want to disciple others who, who want to journey with others in this grace who have a future because they see the grace of God in the future I pray Lord that you would impact this truth in this church so that Christ himself is glorified all the more in Jesus name I pray amen